So this past week we celebrated Christmas and hopefully you had an opportunity to be together with friends and family and uh, hopefully you guys had a great Christmas holiday. I know for me over Christmas, over the Christmas holidays and I think it's true for lots of people, the Christmas holidays are a time of great emotion, a time of great reflection as we think back over the previous year, as we think about our lives. I've had several huge events in my life happen around the time of Christmas. It was 30 years ago in 1983 on Christmas Eve that my father died tragically. I was eight years old, and yet the fact that it happened on Christmas Eve, I'm not sure that I'll ever forget the events of that day and, um, and, and, and sort of the situation surrounding that. But then 16 years ago, two days after Christmas, on December 27th, I got married. My wife and I just celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary over the last couple of days, and that's awesome, right? I mean, that's an awesome thing that happened at, around Christmas time. I also have two kids, a six-year-old girl and an eight-year-old girl, and both of them were born right before Christmas, December 20th and December 21st. So there are these huge events that have happened in my life around Christmas. And so there's not a Christmas holiday that happens that doesn't take me to a point of reflection where I think back over my life as I think about all that's gone on and think about my wife and kids and my father and my family and all of these things. And so Christmas is, uh, without a doubt, a time for me to reflect on and celebrate the birth of Christ. But there's been so much that's happened in my life around Christmas time that I can't help but reflect and think about those time, those things as well over our Christmas holidays. And I think a lot of people are in that situation where we experience emotions and we think about loved ones that we've lost over the year who, who may not be celebrating Christmas with us for the first time. Or we think about other just huge events and, and it sort of all comes together around Christmas time. Maybe that was your experience over the past few days and over the holidays, I don't, I don't know. But nonetheless, I think during the Christmas holidays, New Year holidays, it's a time of great reflection and a time of just sort of emotional ups and downs for a lot of people. And so let me ask you this question. Have you ever experienced a time of great pain and disappointment with God? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've questioned God's goodness. A time when you were so angry or disappointed with God that you were blinded by your emotions and blinded to reality because of the circumstances of your life. I'm not a very emotional person. I don't experience a great deal of emotional swings um, up and down either way. Um, I get grumpy. My wife will attest to that. And I've joked before that because I have red hair, I have two emotions. Zach and I were joking about it earlier. I have two emotions. I'm either asleep or angry. Um, But emotional turmoil is really kind of foreign to me. It's not something that I'm used to, and I don't like it, quite frankly. It makes me feel funny. But several years ago, when my first daughter was born, I mentioned that my oldest daughter was born on December 20th, I experienced some of the most intense and emotional angst that I've ever experienced in my life. By the time Natalie was born, she's eight now. By the time she was born, my wife and I had been struggling for several years to have 
children. And Natalie was only conceived through the help of some pretty intense infertility treatments. It's the miracle of modern medicine. And had things gone differently, you might have seen us on TLC instead of John and Kate plus eight. But by the time Natalie was born, we had been on quite a bit of a roller coaster ride emotionally for, for years, actually, for years. And then not 24 hours after Natalie was born, I'll never forget, we were in the hospital room and Amy was nursing Natalie and this um, nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, I can't remember, she ran into the room and literally snatched Natalie from Amy's arms and took her off to the NICU, ran her to the NICU. And um, it was it was a pretty intense moment. And we found out after that that over the course of Natalie being born and uh, Amy experienced a pretty difficult labor. And over the course of that labor, Natalie had um, contracted a, a lung infection of some sort. And so over Christmas of 2005, we spent um, a little over a week, eight, eight or nine days, in the hospital with Natalie in the NICU. I spent Christmas of 2005 sleeping on a couch in the hospital. And it was intense. It was very intense. You're, you're faced with the reality that we've struggled so long to have this child, and now there's something wrong, and we don't know what's going on. And then on top of all that, it's Christmas. And so um, it was just a very emotional time. And the intensity of my emotions and interaction with God over that week was overwhelming. It was the culmination of a struggle to have this child and then the reality that she was sick and we didn't know what was going to happen. It was highly intense. I experienced a tremendous amount of angst and questioning of God and prayer and why are we here and what's going to happen. Maybe you've been there. Maybe your circumstances were dramatically different from that, but maybe it rings a bell for you. And so we get to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4 doesn't seem like a place where we would land right after Christmas during the holidays, but that's where we're going to be this morning. Jonah chapter 4 is one of the most dramatic. It's one of the most puzzling. It's one of the most ridiculous. And it's one of the most awesome chapters in all of Scripture. In the book of Jonah, chapters 1, 2, and 3, you know the story. God comes to Jonah God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. And I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them to repent of their sin. And so what does Jonah do? Jonah goes and gets on a boat to go to not Nineveh. And he goes in the opposite direction. And so as Jonah's on this boat and he's with these sailors, this storm comes up. And all the sailors are, are, are all calling out to their gods, trying to figure out what's happening. And they're struggling mightily to get back to shore. And they can't do it. And so they start asking these questions. Whose fault is it that the storm has come upon us? And finally, they pull Jonah out of the bottom of the boat. And Jonah says, it's, it's, it's my fault. Throw me overboard and you'll be saved. And the sailors continue to row and things get worse, and so they finally throw Jonah overboard. The storm stops, and God appoints a big fish to come and swallow Jonah, which is ridiculous in, in and of itself. 
And so this big fish swallows Jonah, and God allows Jonah to live while he's inside the belly of this large sea creature, whatever it is. God sustains him. Jonah calls out to God and says, please save me from the grave that I'm in. And eventually the fish throws Jonah up. That's weird. Onto a beach. And Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He goes into Nineveh and he begins to say 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed unless you repent. And the people of Nineveh begin to repent and the king repents and they begin to fast And God relents of his promise to destroy Nineveh. And that's where chapter 3 ends. And that's usually what we think about when we think about Jonah. But the story goes on. And Jonah gets a little nutty. Chapter 4, like I said, is pretty awesome um, for two reasons. Mainly because God continues to extend his grace to to, to Jonah but Jonah is just weird in this chapter. Let's, let's read it. Jonah chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read all of it. I was going to break it up, but let's just read all of Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What displeased Jonah? That God relented of destroying Nineveh. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? In book in chapter four of the book of Jonah, we are directly confronted with Jonah's disappointment with God. In the book of Jonah, there are these large overarching themes throughout the book that all come together right here in Jonah chapter four. In the book of Jonah, we see a God of awesome glory at the center of the universe in control of all things. He speaks to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. He controlled the weather as they're on the boat so that a great storm came up. He appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And he allowed Jonah to live inside the belly of a fish. He allowed a city to repent and he 
He relented of the disaster that he said was coming on them. He orchestrated everything in the book for his own glory that his grace might be displayed. And in chapter 4 here, he causes a plant to grow to give Jonah some shade. And then he destroys the plant. And so throughout the book of Jonah, there's this huge theme that God is awesome. God is in control of all things. God is at the center of the universe, and God will do what God wants. But there's also this theme in Jonah that man is desperately wicked and in need of God's grace. That's where God sent Jonah to Nineveh, because Nineveh was exceedingly evil and they needed to repent because they needed God's grace. And we see God's, we see um, Jonah's wickedness and evil, not only in rebelling and running from God and going to not Nineveh, but also in after God relented, sitting on a hill and pouting that God showed grace to somebody. Man is desperately wicked and constantly in need of God's Grace, but also in the book of Jonah, we see that God is gracious and loving, even in the midst of deserved judgment. Jonah was outrightly rebellious, yet God sustained him and continued to draw him to himself by grace. Nineveh was outrightly wicked and evil, yet God wanted them to repent and come to him. And that's why he sends Jonah, uh, Jonah to Nineveh. And in, book, in chapter 3 of this book, we, we see that Nineveh begins to repent and turn to God because of God's grace. And in the book of Jonah, God's grace is overwhelming. It's, it's all over the book. And it's completely and utterly necessary. And like I said, in chapter 4, all of these themes, these overarching meta-narratives of, of God's grace and man's wickedness and God being in control of all things come together in one place. Let me read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and a abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You have to be completely shocked at Jonah's complaint here. I mean, is Jonah really complaining about God's grace? Is that what he's doing? Here's a little bit of truth for you, and this comes courtesy of a guy named Paul David Tripp, who if you're not familiar with Paul David Tripp, I would encourage you to look him up and listen to his sermons and buy his books. He, he wrote a book called How People Change that is uh, an incredible, incredible book. Paul David Tripp says this, that none of us really live our lives based on facts. Instead, what we do is we interpret facts, we interpret our experiences and we make decisions based on our interpretations. We all look at our lives like it was a precious stone, a, a diamond in a Windsor Jewelers commercial. And we turn it around and we look at it and we hold it up to the light and we get a little microscope and we look at it and we examine it. And we constantly evaluate what we're seeing like, like we're an expert when it comes to our own 
life. And that's what Jonah does here. He, he looks at his life and he looks at the circumstances going on around him. And he looks at God's graciousness and he says, God, your grace is a bad thing. He, he literally interprets God's mercy toward Nineveh as something evil. You think that's weird? That's weird. I am constantly suspicious of my six-year-old daughter, Laurel. If you've had any interaction with her, she is a ball of energy. And she's constantly on the move. And she's constantly doing things that get that gets her into trouble. So I'm constantly suspicious of her. And so I'll say, Laurel, I need you to go to your room and pick up your clothes. Laurel, I need you to go to the bathroom and brush your teeth. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Laurel, go do this. So Laurel will go, and then things will get quiet. And that will make me wonder. If she's being quiet, she's probably not doing what I asked. So I get up to go check on Laurel, and she's not doing what I asked. And so do you remember my two emotions that I told you about earlier, asleep or angry? Uh, That anger starts... And Laura will look at me and say, or she's done this, it's happened before, she'll say, but, but Daddy, I was drawing you this picture of me and you. Or Daddy, I was writing you a note that says I love you, or I love Mommy, or wh- whatever it is. It's, it's happened more than once. And so that in that moment, my interpretation of the event changes. Sure, she's being disobedient, Right. But my interpretation of the event changes to where, okay, that was so sweet. I can't be upset about that. Now pick up your clothes. Um, But in that moment, my my interpretation of the event changes to where instead of me interpreting it simply as Laurel being disobedient or Laurel not doing what she should, it changes to, wow, that was incredibly sweet of her to do that. Jonah looks at Nineveh and does the exact opposite. God, that's not awesome. That's not sweet. That's not a good thing. That's evil. That's bad. For Jonah, it made more sense for Nineveh to be judged than to be shown mercy. And the crazy thing here is, is that Jonah uses his theology to justify why he ran from God to begin with. He actually says, the reason I ran away is because I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting of disaster. That's, that's what he says right in those first four verses. God, you're gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're relenting of disaster. So I'm going to run away. And we have to ask ourselves this question, Right? When we come face to face with Jonah, and we see that Jonah justifies his sin, and Jonah interprets the situation incorrectly, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Some questions. If we don't, we're making a mistake. Number one, how do you justify your sin? Jonah used his theology and his hatred of Nineveh to justify his sin. The reality is Assyria, where Nineveh was, was probably a world power whenever Jonah went to Nineveh. They were a direct threat to the safety of Israel. They were a direct threat to Jonah's own safety. 
And so Jonah uses his theology and his hatred of Nineveh to justify his sin. That's where Jonah makes a mistake. That's probably not where we make a mistake. But the question for us is, how are we justifying our own sin? Because I guarantee you it happens. And if we don't take a moment and reflect on our situation, on our interpretation of what's going on in our life, then we're missing an opportunity that God is putting before us. Secondly, how do you interpret the events of life going on around you? Right? Jonah says, God, you are gracious and merciful. God, you are slow to anger. God, you are abounding in love. God, you are relenting of disaster. And so when things happen in our life, do we interpret those events with that understanding of God? Or do we interpret the events of our life by saying, God, you're mean, you're horrible. God, I don't understand why you're so angry with me. God, why aren't you abounding in love toward me? Because the truth is, the fact is, God is gracious and merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love. God is relenting of disaster. And so when we experience all the horrible lows of life and the highest highs of life, are we interpreting those events in light of that reality? Because if we don't, we're missing an opportunity that God is putting before us so that he might draw us to his grace. You with me? Everybody good? But Jonah justifies his sin, interprets the situation incorrectly, and then he goes one step further. And I'm amazed. Like, I know God doesn't strike people down with lightning, right? We joke about that. But in this situation, I'm wondering, God, why didn't you strike Jonah down with lightning? Because Jonah says to you, I would rather be dead than see Nineveh get mercy. God, over my dead body, are you going to relent of disaster for these people, for this city? What? What? I want you to hear me, and I want you to be shocked, and I want you to be amazed by Jonah's words here. Because they're utterly ridiculous. And the danger for us in this room this morning is that we will be just as ridiculous as Jonah. That we would look at God's grace and call it evil. That we would look at God's mercy and call it wrong. That we would justify our sin. That we would think it better to run from God than to display grace and mercy. That we would think it better to run away from God's grace than to run toward it. A danger is not just present for Jonah, it's present for all of us. You see, those of us who are unwilling to be gracious and merciful to others have forgotten how much we've been forgiven. We've forgotten how gracious has been, how gracious God has been to us. What is incredible in this moment is that Jonah is actually complaining about God's Grace And without God's grace, Jonah would be dead. He would have drowned in the sea. 
he would have been digested by a fish. And yet he's still alive. The same grace that sustained Jonah inside a fish is allowing Nineveh to repent and not be destroyed. Jonah misses it, right? It's, I, but we're just like Jonah. I'm just like Jonah. You're just like Jonah. May it never be that we would want God's grace and mercy for ourselves and God's justice and wrath for others. May it never be. Hear me out. I'm all about evil people being punished. I'm all about people who harm others getting their just rewards. For the past five years of my life, I've done information technology work for the city of Augusta's public safety departments. I, I love working with the sheriff's office and 911 and the fire department. And, and, and I play a very small role in what they do, and I get that. But, but my role has been the technology that I support and implement and help them use. It Hopefully it helps make a better um, society for us. Hopefully it helps them to respond quickly to, to situations that they need to respond to, to keep officers safe, to, to make our society better, hopefully. And, and I'm all about them doing their job. I'm all about people who need to be punished being punished. But it would be wrong of me to forget that in God's economy, all of us, every last one of us, deserves justice rather than grace. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to say that. But it's true. We all deserve death and hell because all of us have offended a holy God. It doesn't matter what your sin is. I, I, I don't care. But we've all offended a holy God. And because of that, all of us deserve death and hell. And yet Jesus died on the cross to bear God's wrath and be our substitute for the punishment that we deserve. I have been forgiven greatly. You have been forgiven greatly. I have been shown abundant grace and mercy. You have been shown abundant grace and mercy. Therefore, may I never wish that God would not continue to display his grace and mercy to others. So the book of Jonah should serve as a warning to us. It should serve as a reminder to us of God's graciousness, and it should serve as a warning to us to be careful about how we justify our sin, to be careful about how we interpret the events of life around us. Because Jonah made a mistake. May it be that we would not make the same mistake, even in the midst of our anger and disappointment with God. Because if you haven't been angry at God yet, you will. If you haven't been disappointed with God yet, you will. But tell me this, how is it that a prophet of God would rather die than see people repent? I think based on what we know about Jonah, we could make the following arguments. Jonah is prejudiced against anyone and everyone that doesn't match his ethnicity and religion. Uh, the world, um, the situation around Jonah at the, at the time, Assyria was a world power. Uh, Israel was probably threatened by their military power. Jonah hated them. 
In some sense, Jonah is also a legalist. He wants people to be punished rather than forgiven. He wants people to be destroyed rather than to receive God's grace. Last Sunday, we came home from church, and at my house on Sunday afternoons, we've implemented quiet rest time. Right? And that's an opportunity for my girls to go to their room and hang out by themselves for a little bit and for me to take a little nap on the couch after I eat lunch and, you know, whatever. It's really all about me. Um, and so last Sunday we got home from church and Laurel, my six-year-old that I mentioned earlier, had had a pretty rough day. Um, she had been um, disobedient and talked back to my wife quite a bit and she was having a rough time and so I was little perturbed with her and so I sent her to her room and said Laurel you're going to lay on your bed you're not going to have any toys you're not going to have anything to do I just want you to lay there and be quiet and I walked out of her room and I felt bad Um, and so I sat down for a few minutes and then I got up and I took some dolls back into her room and said Laurel while you're laying on your bed, you can play with these dolls. Don't get up from your bed, but you can play with these dolls. I walked back out and sat back down on the couch, getting ready to, you know, eat my lunch or take my nap. And Amy said, did you explain to her that what you just did was offer grace? And I hung my head, got back up, walked back into Laurel's room and said, Laurel, I want you to understand that I'm angry with you. You, you don't deserve to play with these dolls. You don't deserve to have this fun because you've had a horrible morning, but this is an act of grace, and I want you to understand grace. And God gives us his grace, and I'm showing you grace, and I want you to understand what grace is. You see, at my house we, a long time ago, we made the decision that in situations like that, um, we're going to demonstrate grace. The first time I ever did it, I think, was when Natalie was younger. Um, I told her she had to eat her vegetables in order to get ice cream or whatever it was. And I don't remember what she was supposed to eat, but it was a situation to where the vegetables weren't getting eaten. And so I remember pulling the plate over and said, baby, these vegetables have to get eaten for you to get ice cream. So I'm going to eat them for you so that you can have ice cream. And this is what grace is. It's where you get what you don't really deserve because I want my kids to learn about grace. I want my kids to appreciate grace. I want my kids to understand what grace is. I want my kids to understand that grace comes from God first. And Jonah doesn't get it. Jonah would rather they be punished than be given grace. Jonah is also very self-righteous. Jonah has forgotten his own rebellion. He's forgotten that he purposefully ran from God, that God literally harnessed the forces of nature to save Jonah and to save the sailors. Literally, he sent a storm. He allowed Jonah to live in the belly of a fish. Literally harnessed the forces of nature to save Jonah. Has God ever done that for you? I would imagine it would be something you would remember. If you were in the belly of a fish for three days thinking that you were going to die, seems like you'd remember it. But Jonah is so self-righteous that he forgets that God literally harnessed the forces of nature to save him. And finally, I think Jonah actually thinks he knows more and better than God in this situation. I mean, Jonah is an easy target. It's easy for me to stand up here and to point out Jonah's 
flaws. It's much more difficult for me to stand up here and examine my own heart and my own life and ask myself this question. Am I thinking or acting like I know more than God in any situation in my life? Am I acting like I deserve God's grace? And to take it a step further, am I acting like somebody else doesn't? The danger for us is probably that we'll think we deserve God's grace, not that we will not want others to get it, but but maybe. Because if I answer yes, that I think I know more than God, or I answer yes, that I deserve God's grace, well then, I've got some heart problems that I need to deal with. And I desperately need for God to save me from me. I desperately need God to save me from any seeds of legalism in me or prejudice in me or self-righteousness in me or thinking that I know better than God in any way. In Jonah 4 and verse 4 and following, the rest of the chapter that we read earlier, God continues to give Jonah an opportunity to repent and to understand his grace In verse 4, God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah is so self-righteous and arrogant, God's already relented of destroying Nineveh. He goes out and he sits on a hill outside of Nineveh, and it says so that he'll see what happens to Nineveh. God's already relented of destroying Nineveh. And Jonah goes and sits on a hill to wait for God to destroy Nineveh. What? That's what verse 5 tells us that Jonah does. And then in verses 6 through 11, there's this whole narrative of God causing a tree or a plant to grow to cover Jonah. And Jonah's happy about it. And then God makes the tree die. And then God's mad. I mean, and then Jonah's mad. Mad enough to die because the tree died. God repeatedly gives Jonah an opportunity to understand and recognize his grace. And the tragedy of this book is that Jonah never gets it. Jonah 4 closes, and we don't know what happened to Jonah. We know that God relented of destroying Nineveh because of their repentance. Jonah 4, the chapter closes with God saying, Do you really do well to be angry? And we have no idea what Jonah says in response. We don't know if Jonah died on the mountain. We don't know if Jonah went back into the city. We don't know if Jonah went home. But the tragedy is, God repeatedly gave Jonah opportunities to repent and to recognize the grace that he was offering. And Jonah never did, at least that we know of. Tomorrow you may wake up and complain to God about the circumstances of life. Maybe you'll complain about God's goodness towards somebody else while you're suffering. Maybe you'll wake up and think that you know better than God about something. And you may want God to serve up some destruction all the while forgetting the grace that he's given you. Maybe even worse, you'll wake up and forget that God has offered you grace at all. But I want you to hear me. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, your only hope is not in your theology. It's not in the way that you justify your sin. Your hope is not in your own self-righteousness. Your hope is not in your wisdom. Your hope is not in you. Your only hope is in a God who constantly, who repeatedly 
who over and over and over draws you back to his grace, who constantly reminds you of your need for his grace, who reminds you of the grace that he's already poured out, who offers to sustain you with that same grace solely because of Jesus. The greatest danger to any of us in this room is us. We are at times our own worst enemies and may we never be okay with our prejudice or legalism or self-righteousness or thinking that we know better than God. And it's easy for me to sit up here and beat up on Jonah and wonder why he would be so ridiculous as to forget God's grace. It's a lot harder for me to examine my own life and ask, have I forgotten God's grace? Instead, may God rescue me from me. May God rescue us from us. May God remind us of his grace. May we treasure it. May we long for it. May we live in light of it. May we extend it to those around us and forever be grateful that God extends his grace continually to us and those around us. One final thought, and then I'll be done. I'll be quiet. And don't miss this, okay? It's an important theological truth that all of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Don't, don't forget that. So in Jonah, we have to see this, that Jesus is the true and better messenger to God's people and to people who don't know God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who was disappointed that God would offer grace to people unlike him instead of punishing them. But Jesus was God offering grace to people unlike him by willingly taking on their punishment. Where Jonah failed, Jesus was perfect. So let's respond accordingly to that grace that Jesus offers through his perfect substitutionary death on a cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder from Jonah this morning of your grace. God, may we never forget it. May it surround our lives. May we recognize that your grace is unbelievable, that we don't deserve it, and yet, God, you continually offer it. You're a God that is gracious and slow to anger and loving and relenting of disaster despite the fact that we've done nothing to earn that grace. God, thank you for it. I pray that that grace and that truth would so impact our lives even as we sit and stand in this room that it would change us from the inside out. God, I pray that you would change hearts, that you would change minds, that you would change lives because of your grace. God, in fact, that is the only thing that can change us. And so, God, we thank you for it. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.